Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where tour players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every week as he talks with the greats of the game. You are the smartest guy I've spoken to on radio or television in my career. And Chris, again, you are, you're knocking out of the park. You're like eight under par in this interview. By having any research, I'm hiring your tail to be the research man. You're the best. You're a fantastic host and tremendously respected in the golf community. Yeah, Chris, you do an amazing job and your listeners are super lucky to have you and it's always my pleasure. Chris Carroll is the king of the golf podcast. Don't miss him on Tuesdays. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and welcome to Next on the Tee. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro. This is always a tough week for me. As you know, I love the Masters. I soaked in every moment I could during a challenging Masters week with all the weather issues and the adjustments for when and where you could watch the tournament. But Sunday was awesome. We got bonus golf, 30 holes with the leaders. Congratulations to John Rahm for his tremendous victory. Congrats as well to Brooks Kepka, who appears to be healthy again and back on track. Phil Mickelson, 52 years of age, finishing tied for second. What a great week it was for Phil. And my guy Jordan Spieth with another Masters top five finish. Like with my buddies golf trip every year, the Masters anticipation is so great but it goes by in the blink of an eye. For those of you who follow me on social media, you know I ordered the Taste of the Masters. Highly recommended, by the way. Egg salad and barbecue are outstanding. My wife loves the pimento cheese. You get Augusta National chips, a sleeve of the tournament plastic cups, chocolate chip cookies. It's all wonderful. It's a great thing to enjoy when you're watching the final round of the Masters. Again, highly recommended. Okay, on to tonight's show, and what a great lineup I have in store for you this week. First up with me will be 1989 Open champion and 1988 Masters runner-up, Mark Kalkovecchia. He's going to be followed by 2011 U.S. Senior Open champion, Olin Brown. After Olin will be the executive director of the South Florida PGA section, Jeff Lofsted. And then we're going to round things out with the host of the Augusta Golf Show, John Patrick. So a tremendous foursome in store for you tonight. It's going to be a really fun 90 minutes. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. I want to start things off by reminding you about the Macklemore. It's a private resort located just south of Chattanooga, high atop Lookout Mountain, Georgia. It's a casual two-hour drive from Atlanta, Nashville, and Birmingham. The existing Highlands course is now ranked in the top 100 courses you can play in the United States by Golf Digest. The 18th hole is ranked in the top 10 finishing holes in the world. A second course, the Outpost, is now under construction and will open summer of 2024. That Outpost is another Bill Bergen, Reese Jones designed and features a mile and a half of dramatic cliff edge, which every inch of that cliff edge is filled up with a golf hole. They've got a world-class hotel, Cloudland Lookout Mountain Curio Collection by Hilton, will open spring of 2024. Both have incredible views into historic Macklemore Cove, 1,200 feet below. You gotta see it to believe it, folks. Stay, dine, and play golf above the clouds at Macklemore. Go online to macklemore.com to book your stay and play package today. And let's talk about grips, folks. I want to remind you about our friends over at Lambkin Grips because every shot 
has its own unique feel. The trick? Feel comfortable with each one. And comfort is built into the very DNA of Sonar Plus Black Grips. Let's talk about our connection to the club, folks. And let's talk about our friends over at Lampkin Grips, because every shot has its own unique feel. The trick? Feel comfortable with each one. And comfort is built into the very DNA of Sonar Plus Black Grips. Composed of their Genesis material that provides supreme comfort and durability, while their fingerprint technology creates a strong connection and unforgettable touch. The game changes from shot to shot. The feel in your hand shouldn't, though. Lampkin. Feel is everything. I also want to remind you about the all-new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade. If there's one thing we know golfers want from a driver, it's distance. But there's actually two things we all want. Distance, and let's not forget, forgiveness. That's why TaylorMade designed the Stealth 2 driver with even more carbon for even more forgiveness. To learn more about the new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade, visit TaylorMadeGolf.com. Okay, now and next on the tee with me is 1989 Open champion Mark Kalkavecchia. Let me remind you about Mark's background. He's from Laurel, Nebraska. His family moved to West Palm Beach, Florida when he was 13. He won the Florida High School Golf Championship in 1977, played his college golf at the University of Florida from 1978 to 1980, and was named All-SEC in 1979. That season, Mark won the Furman Invitational, he turned pro in 1981, got his first win on the PGA Tour at the 1986 Southwest Golf Classic. Mark has one of the lowest scoring rounds to par in PGA Tour history. He finished 28 under, a four-round total of 256 at the 2001 Waste Management Open, which featured a second-round 60. At the 2009 Canadian Open, Mark set the record by making nine consecutive birdies during his second round. In all, Mark has won 13 times on the PGA Tour, including that 89 Open Championship at Royal Troon in a playoff over Greg Norman and Wayne Grady. He's won four times on the Champions Tour. Over the course of his career, he has 193 top 10 finishes, 351 top 25s, and he's a great follow out on Twitter, at Mark Kalk, and I'm thrilled he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Mark, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me. Always uh, always good to be on the show. I appreciate you. So, Mark, since we last spoke, you had both knees replaced, and you were telling me you actually went out and played nine holes a few days ago, which is fantastic news. How are you feeling? I, I did, yeah. I had my left knee uh, done in November, uh, November 1st, and my right one uh, at the end of January. So that's been 10 weeks on my right one, but uh, they're, they're, they're feeling pretty good. Uh, you know, they get stiff and whatnot still, but, uh, it doesn't hurt to, uh, uh, to hit the golf ball, which is good. Uh, uh, I'm starting to walk further and further each day. So I'm just, uh, now trying to build up strength in my, uh, in my thighs and my calves and whatnot. Uh, so other than that, uh, I hope to, uh, get back out and start playing again on the champions tour in a few months. Yeah. Are you still looking to get out there this summer? When do you think that might be? Yeah, I'm shooting for uh, the Principal Charity Classic in Des Moines, which is one of the tournaments uh, that I've won on, on the Champions Tour. Uh, uh, I love Des Moines. It's a, it's a great Midwestern city. It's only about four hours from Laurel, where I grew up, so uh, it reminds me a lot of home. Uh, and just uh, uh, the golf course is a little quirky. It's kind of old school and kind of hilly and a little bit goofy, but uh, it seems to suit me. It's uh, it's actually uh, uh, I've had a lot of good events there, uh, plus the win. So uh, that's 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 what I'm shooting for the first week of gym. 
Mark, switching gears a little bit, I want to talk about the Masters. Your wife, Brenda, actually posted an article about something I had no idea that you started, and that's the tradition of skipping the ball across the pond on 16. She said you actually got reprimanded a little bit for doing that. What's that story? Well, I, actually, my buddy Ken Green took most of the heat because, you know, he, he was easier to yell at than me. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, when, when Ken and I started hanging out in the early 80s on the PGA Tour, uh, you know, we, we, we did a lot of weird things, uh, you, you know, hitting skip shots or, uh, or, or ricochet shots or, or, you know, trying to chip it in the sink in the hotel room and, and just all, <laughs> all kinds of weird stuff. So. Of course, uh, we're, we're playing a practice round. My first Masters was in 87. His was in 86. He was actually leading the first round, uh, that year. But anyway, so we get to hit 16 and he says, Chuck, let's, let's hit a skip shot. I'll bet you a, a beer or whatever. Uh, I can get on the green and, you know, whoever hits the green gets a beer. I said, okay. So we gave it a shot and I, I think we hit a couple of them. Uh, and didn't think too much about it. It was fun. The crowd liked it. And then, uh, that was on Monday. We got to the course Tuesday morning for a practice round and Ken had a letter in his locker from Horde Harden. Uh, it said, uh, uh, Ken, uh, we don't do that here at Augusta National. Uh, and that was pretty much it. So of course, <laughs> 16 holes later, 15 holes later, we get out there and we're like, uh, well, what do you think? I said, heck yeah, we got to give it another shot. And, uh, anyway. Uh, and we did, of course, we did it again Wednesday and uh, everybody started following suit after that. So yeah, we, we were the inventors in 87. <laughs> wow. So how did, how did it all come about where everybody else started following suit? Did you guys talk about it and tell the story about the letter? And, and did, did they say anything else the second or third day when you kept doing it? Yeah, I think all the above. I, you know, I think the guys playing behind us saw us do it. Uh, guys walking down the hill on six saw us doing it. And the crowd was kind of getting into it. And, uh, I think it just kind of, kind of caught on as, as time went on. And, uh, of course, I think the, the, the news got out that uh, Ken got a letter and everybody thought that was kind of funny. And, uh, the fact that we kept doing it, uh, and then, uh, you know, after that, after that, I think the very next year, of course, we're out there doing it again and, and, uh, noticed every single group was hitting skip shots. So that's, uh, that was it. As a major champion, do you still get invited to go back to the tournament and play in the par three? You know, we can't play in the par three anymore. Uh, yeah, we still get invited to come back to the tournament as an honorary invitee. Uh, but we're not allowed to uh, play uh, practice rounds or the par three anymore. For years, you know, like the past amateur champions like Buddy Alexander and and Buddy Marucci and some of these guys that, I mean, they'd literally play 36 holes a day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and play the par three. Uh, I don't know if they kind of overdid it in that sense, but, uh, as time went on, uh, I think, <clears throat> I think the last year, and I, I actually played, uh, Craig Stadler played his last Masters when his son Kevin was in the Masters and we were there that year and, uh, uh, Played a played a uh, played a practice round with those two guys, and uh, I think that was the last year, whatever year that was, that uh, they allowed you to play the par three and uh, and play a practice round. When you played in the par three, did you ever play really well and then accidentally on purpose hit one in the water, get yourself DQ'd because you didn't want to have to deal with the curse? No, actually, I completely choked and hit it in the water. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was in a playoff with Nick Price, 
and uh, and I just kind of fanned a wedge. The playoff was on uh, started on number eight, and I wanted that trophy pretty bad. And uh, I just kind of whiffed a wedge right in the pond, and and that was it. So uh, hit another <laughs> one, hit it on the green. He hit it in, in there pretty close, and they just shook his hand and said congrats, and walked walked back up the clubhouse. Didn't even walk down to the green. So yeah, I was a little bit bummed out, but I, I was I was definitely trying to win that thing. As you mentioned, 87 being your first Masters, you finished tied for 17th that year, which is pretty solid for your first time at, at a Masters tournament. What was that week like? And did you pick anybody's brain to kind of learn about the course and where you needed to hit it and all that sort of thing? I'm pretty sure I played a practice round. Uh, Ken and I played with Ben Crenshaw, and I can't remember who else. But, uh, you know, Ben's certainly one that was uh, that, that knew those greens like the back of his hand, and he was he was the guy that we kind of ask, uh, you know, where do you definitely not hit it? Uh, you know, if you can avoid it on, uh, on pretty much every hole, uh, to give yourself the best chance to, to two putt or make a par. So, uh, and th- no doubt that helped. And, uh, you know, and just the course was just, you know, it's the masters. It's Augusta national. It was obviously before they did all the renovations and made it longer and, and this and that. So it was kind of the way it always was. And, uh, you know, I really thought it was uh, a really good course for me. Even though I hit a fade, there's really only a couple of holes where it really helps to hit a hit a, a hook off the tee. And uh, two and two and ten are really those only two holes where you got to hook it. So, do you remember your first drive up Magnolia Lane? Actually, I do. Uh, I do. I, I was I was excited, but slightly underwhelmed. Uh, I, I just kind of thought, well, this is kind of cool. You can see the clubhouse up there and it's a bunch of magnolia trees and, you know, there are leaves and junk all over the ground. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> like they were bloom or anything. I was like, okay, it's kind of a road with trees, but, uh, yeah, no, it, it, it I do remember it and it was, it was cool. Uh, and of course, you know, when you pull up the in front there and, and, uh, you know, your wife and your family and your caddy and your buddies and everybody else is piled in the car. There's about eight of you jammed in there and, uh, everybody pops out and then uh, your, your buddy, my caddy, you know, took the car down to player parking. So that was always kind of fun to, to, to get out right there in front. You come back the next year in 88 and you're chasing eventual winner Sandy Lyle for four days. You're actually trailing him by five shots after the seventh hole on Sunday. Six holes later, you're leading by one. Things change pretty fast at Augusta National in a final round. What was it like? What was that swing like for you? Yeah, they sure do change quick there. It was, uh, well, my motto always there. Uh, and, and over the years, people have seen the front nine. My, my motto was always just get me to the eight, uh, to the eighth tee, the par five. If I can get there even par through the first seven, I'm, I'm happy. You know, I'm, I'm thrilled about it because I knew I could play the last 11 holes. And, uh, that's kind of what I did on Sunday. And it was, it was a tough week weather wise. It was, it was pretty windy. Uh, you know, the scores weren't low at all. Uh, I think Sandy finished at seven under and I was six under for the week. Uh, the greens were, I remember nine green on Friday was a combination of green and purple and yellow. I, I think like six guys four putted the ninth green. Wow. So it was, it was pretty wicked conditions. Uh, but anyway, yeah, once I, uh, uh, I think I buried eight and 10 and 13 or whatever. And, uh, 
all of a sudden I, I, I looked up and I was right there. I was tied for the leader one ahead. And then, then I, 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 I'm pretty sure I just parred the last five. I made a, a couple of decent par putts on, uh, like five footers on 16 and 17. And then, uh, the one shot I've always said in my career, I wish I could take back was the, uh, I hit a beautiful drive on 18 and I tried to smash a wedge. Uh, and I thought if I hit it absolutely perfect, it's going to be, it's going to be right on the number. And I hit it really good, but not perfect. And it hit the false front and spun back. And I completely forgot about the, 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 uh, the back slope in the middle of the green, uh, you know, where I should have hit a, a nine iron and, and, and tried to at least get it up there and use the slope and have it come back. So I had a putt at it, but anyway, I hit a, I hit a great chip and, and tapped it in for par. And then of course, uh, the rest of this history, uh, with Sandy Lyle probably hitting the, the greatest fairway bunker shot, uh, uh, right along with, uh, Matt Fitzpatrick, uh, last year at the country yeah. club hole to, to win a major, but, uh, you know, Sandy hit a beauty and, and got it up there and it rolled back down the hill. And he, of course he poured the 10 footer right in the middle. So I want to talk about a couple of the, the, the shots you just made mention of, cause you had about a five or six footer for par on 15. You drained that putt and you walked off that green pretty demonstratively. I imagine the adrenaline had to be pumping at that point when that putt curled in. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing like, uh, I mean, that was, that was, I mean, I was still young and I'd, I'd only won a couple of tournaments, uh, leading up to that, but I was, I was really playing well and I was pretty confident. And, uh, you know, just that, that whole scene there when you're standing on top of the hill at 15 and see all the people and the water and the green and 16 and whatnot. It's, uh, I, I remember in 2001, uh, when I was in the second to last group, uh, the year, one of the year tigers won tiger one, John Wood was caddying for me. who does TV now. Of course he caddied for Hunter Mayhan for years and, and, and coach and, and pretty much everybody. He caddied for me for a few years and he just, he, he, he just said, look, look at this, would you? I mean, you, you know, it was just a, a view that you will never, I'll never forget. I just kind of took a picture of it in my head. Uh, uh, it was just, it was just cool. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's the spot you want to be. And, uh, you know, to, to make nice five footers for pars on 16 and 17, uh, it was huge. And then, uh, you know, then Sandy made, made birdie in 18, but it was, uh, it's it's my favorite tournament to watch all year. There's no question. Your tee shot on 16 was a little bit long and left. They had another tester for par there. You make that one, as you said. And rewatching that final round, I, I did that this morning, and I thought, you know, when when that putt on 15, and then the one on 16 goes in, it just if I was in the moment and this, and I didn't know what the outcome was, I would have thought, you know, Mark's got this. I mean, everything is just sort of going his way. He's making the testers. Nothing seems to be bothering him. He's got a one-stroke lead. At, when you walk off 16 going to 17, do, do you did you allow yourself to get ahead to think, you know what, I, I think I got this one? You know, Chris, I, I actually did. Uh, you know, I knew uh, I, I knew that, you know, I had 17 and 18 left and, and hit a good drive on 17 and a nice, uh, not sure what it was, probably a nine iron in there, about, 15, 18 feet, just long left of the hole. The pin was kind of over on the front right or the right side. And I knew it was fast. And I literally just tapped this thing. And, and that one buzzed by about four or five feet as well. And uh, I was thrilled to get that one back in the hole. So 
you know, and then of course, 18 just sets up perfect for me off the tee. And I just told myself to do what you've been doing. And, and then I, I, I blasted one right around the corner. It was, it was perfect. And you mentioned a moment ago, your second shot and you come up just a little bit short and you hit a, a wonderful little chip shot for a moment. It looked to me like that thing was going to curl in the hole too. You sort of tap your, your heart a little bit. It, did you yeah. think that was going in or, or were you, were you relieved that it, it stopped that close to the hole? No, I was, I was relieved. I didn't have to make another tester on the 18th green. <laughs> I, I knew I could make that six inch or so. Uh, yeah, that was, that, that was a relief. Uh, you know, obviously at that time I knew where I stood and, uh, actually when I was playing 18, I was one ahead because Sandy was just on 16 and, uh, you know, he made that putt from off the back of the green there as well, going down the hill uh for birdie so uh and then and then by the time i got done signed my card uh they rushed me into the butler cabin over there just left a 10t and said sandy just uh hit his uh tee shot on 18 in the fairway bunker fairly close to the lip and uh i sat down and i watched it and i said well nobody in the world hits it higher than he does and you know he was on a little upslope i said it's a tough shot but I, I was talking myself into it. I said, just don't worry. He's going to make a par. Don't think you're going to win this thing right now. Get, get yourself psyched up for a playoff. And, uh, and then of course he hit the fairway bunker shot. He jumped out of there and his eyes were about as big as baseballs. And I knew, he, I knew he hit an amazing shot the second he hit it. Did you? I, well, I'm obviously, you know, the, the talk on the broadcast was, could he get it over the lip and, and all of that sort of thing. And then and when he hit it, I, I, I didn't necessarily think that this ball was going to end up right near the hole. And, and obviously, like, like you say, the rest is history. And he did. Um, but I, I got to imagine you were thinking, well, we're going to be in a playoff here. There's nothing worse than a playoff. And then when he hit that shot, brutal. Yeah. You know, and it, it, <laughs> his ball actually stopped on the, on the, on the second tier there for about three seconds. Uh, and then it started trickling back down. It, it, it could have stayed there, hit a ball mark or something. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to roll back down the hill. But, uh, yeah, I went to start it moving. And then I, I just, I told everybody in Butler cabin, uh, he's, he's going to make this. He's, he's such a good putter. And, uh, you know, his putt, I've, I've watched it a hundred times at least. It kind of zigzagged its way down there. It kind of went a little, little right and kind of a little left. And then it, zigzag and then it went a little right at the end right in the middle and i was like yeah oh well and you know and then it press i remember being in the press room afterwards and even though i was disappointed uh i what i said was uh i said well you know obviously i'm disappointed but you gotta give sandy well 100 credit he buried the last hole to win the masters and uh i said this is only my second masters i'm gonna have about 20 more chances to win this thing and uh I said I, I was pretty sure I'd get a green jacket one day. Of course, I never did, but that was my attitude at the time that uh, I just gave him full credit and was looking forward to coming back next year and hopefully winning it uh, in the next year. We know you finished second, obviously, that year. But last week, we learned that you finished second again to some guy who's on the Today Show. You apparently lost <laughs> in a playoff to that guy. I can't believe I've never heard about that. What's that story? <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. Uh, somebody sent that to me cause I didn't see it live. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, what, uh, uh, 
Carson Daly had a green jacket on and he had like some sort of like fake looking master patch on and, and Hoda and Savannah were giving him grief. And they're like, what do you, what do you win the masters or something? He goes, yeah, matter of factly, I did. I won the, I won the 1988 masters over Mark Kalkovecki in a playoff. And Craig <laughs> Melvin starts laughing. He goes, Kalkovecki, we pulled that one out of, the, out of the archives. So I, I thought it was hysterical. So <laughs> I thought, oh, my week's made. I, I got a shout out on the Today Show for losing in a playoff. <laughs> yeah. I thought funny. that was funny. That and, was. Um, I want to get your thoughts. You mentioned the 01 chance, you know, 13 years later, you, you get yourself right back in the mix in the final round. Actually birdied number one, Tiger bogeyed. Yeah. So it was you, Tiger and Phil tied at that point. David Duvall would, would get in the mix in the back nine. But what do you remember about having a second opportunity to win it? Uh, I, that was probably the worst thing that happened to me was birdieing one. Cause all of a sudden I realized I was tied for the lead in the masters. And, uh, I really didn't do much anything the rest of the day. I, I played average at best and didn't make any pots. I think I shot 72, but it was a perfect day. There was hardly any wind. So the course, the course was there for the, uh, for the taking, but uh, yeah, it was, uh, I just kind of got, got ahead of myself a little bit. I'll admit and got a little bit nervous. Uh, you know, obviously it happens. It's, it, it happens all the time uh, in big tournaments and, uh, that's kind of what happened to me in 01. So I want to get your thoughts on this year's tournament. Brooks Kepka was, you know, critical of play. It seemed like on the, uh, on the Sunday and the, in the final group, he was talking about how he and John Rahm seemed to wait on every shot and the, and he blamed it on the group in front of them, which was Victor Hovland and Patrick Cantley. And even Hovland's patience seemed to, to wear out. There are several shots of him playing ahead of Cantlay, walking ahead of him and all that sort of stuff. I, I think trying to give him a message that we need to pick it up here. I think there was about a hole and a half between uh, the group in front of them. Talk about, you know, in a major tournament like that, how much does slow play and getting on your nerves play into your ability to play well and stay focused? I think in this case, it, it really hurt Brooks um, because he is a fast player. And it, it was, it was slow. I mean, it took like four hours and 40 minutes to play the last round in twosomes. You know, I know it was a, it was a tough day. There was some wind out there and guys, guys were struggling in spots, but you know, Phil shot seven under speed six under. I mean, there were good rounds. Um, but yeah, Patrick can't lay slow, but uh, I saw a scanned across the golf channel today and he was being interviewed over in Hilton head and said, you know, we fell behind a little bit, but then we, we waited on our second shots in 15 and we waited on our second shots in 18. So at the end of the day, you know, they, they didn't finish behind, but it, it is frustrating when you're, uh, you're anxious, number one, and, and you're ready to pull the trigger and you're looking at the guy standing out there for two or three minutes trying to figure out what club to hit. And, uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's hard. And I, I, I do think that bothered, uh, bothered Brooks quite a bit. Did you ever, uh, without naming names, if you don't want to, I mean, did you ever have to deal with guys in front of you, slow play, you know, start to think about, hey, where's where's a tournament official? Where's where's somebody that can get in these guys' ear to, to pick this up? Because it looks like we're headed for a five- or six-hour round here. Yeah, it's it's definitely bothered me at times uh, throughout my career. There's no doubt being uh, that I'm a very fast player. 
but you know, as, as, as time has gone on, you know, I realized there's, there's really nothing you can do about it. That, that, that if the tour officials haven't done anything about it by now, uh, by, you know, slapping two shot penalties on guys for, for taking two or three minutes out there to hit a, and, and speed took three, three minutes to hit a shot the other day. I couldn't believe it. Uh, you know, some guys just, they won't pull the trigger until they're a hundred percent ready what they're doing. And, uh, it's it's just kind of a, a lingering chain effect, uh, and it and it is it, it it's hard on the faster players, but uh, also I think everybody's come to realize that's just the way it is, and you might as well just not worry about it. So, that stuff aside, what did you think about what you saw from John Rahm over the last you know thirty so or so holes on uh, on Sunday? I, I thought going into Sunday for sure that Brooks would win uh, based on the way he played. Even the, the 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 seven holes in the horrible weather on Sunday uh, or Saturday morning, rather, uh, before it got canceled. Uh, but then I also realized that uh, once you know he missed his putt when they came back and resumed Sunday morning, and Rom made his, the four shot lead was down to two. You know, but then Brooks kind of hung in there. He was always kept his two or three shot lead the whole day, and and you know had a two shot lead going into the last round, but. Uh, that three wood that he hit out in the middle of the ninth fairway on, on one was, was shocking. Uh, and it didn't hit a tree to get over there. It just, it just took off over there. Uh, it was just dead left. And I thought, Oh no, that's not, that's not a good sign. Even though he made a par and, you know, and actually Rom made a, a, a slippery little 10 footer there for par, uh, to stay two back. So, uh, and then Rom made that downhill, uh, left to right or slippery putt on three for birdie to get with one in one. And I knew at that point it was going to, it was, you know, Kepka wasn't going to win by many if he did win. And, uh, as, as the round went on, it just looked like he was a little bit uneasy and, uh, it just never looked like Rom was going to, uh, it was going to falter, especially on the back nine. Uh, you know, I just didn't think John was going to, uh, make any bogeys and he didn't. I mean, he played great. Mark, the live players seem to be welcomed back nicely. Phil got lots of cheers. Brooks and Rory talked in their press conferences earlier in the week about seeing each other frequently. They practiced down in the same area there in Jupiter. Could the whole notion of a rift between the players be, as some guy said, all media driven? Because things seem to go just fine. No, I, I knew I knew things would go over uh, very smoothly. You know, and evidently Phil didn't say hardly anything at the past Champions Dinner. And, and, and a few guys might have been a little more quiet than usual. Uh, I also noticed uh, Phil got zero TV coverage the first two rounds, even though he was four under par. Uh, you know, they never mentioned Patrick Reed uh, until they had to. So it was it was a little weird. But as far as the uh, the guys getting along and mingling, I mean, it, no, I, I wasn't worried about any, anything going going on there at all. You know, they uh, and I had no problem with those guys playing on the live tour and and uh, taking the taking the money and and I think guys in the PGA tour are happy happy they're still there. Uh so what it didn't surprise me at all that everything went went really smoothly. Mark uh before I let you go, you've uh, done such a great job over the years of you know being one one of the fan favorites out on the both the regular tour and then out on the Champions Tour. Um just 
as as you wind down your playing career, how much longer do you want to play, and and how much have the fans booed you over the years? <laughs> I got a few boos here and there. Not uh, booing. I mean, like I mean, booey <laughs> as in raised you up or made you feel oh. <laughs> made you did, feel good about you. Well, I did get a few boos too, but uh, no, that the, the fans have always been great to me. Uh, you know, there were times that I acted like an idiot, and I, I realized that, and I shouldn't have, but. Obviously, as I've gotten older and mellowed and uh, really enjoyed playing on the Champions Tour, uh, you know, I hope to play a couple more years. Uh, I, I, my knees are getting healthy. My back feels good. So hopefully uh, uh, I can kind of get back into contention and have a chance to win another tournament out on the Champions Tour. But I've also noticed <clears throat> without, you know, I've only played nine holes in seven months. Uh, the longer you go without playing, the harder it is to come back. Uh, and you know, I've had a few days where I, I could have sworn I was going to go to the course and, and, and said, I said, ah, screw it. I'm going to watch Netflix or something, you know? So, <laughs> uh, but no, I've always appreciated the fans and, uh, uh, a lot of nice things that people say about me on Twitter and in social media. So it's, it's, it's greatly appreciated. Mark, before I let you go, remind our listeners again, how they can stay up to date with you, all the great things you're doing and look forward to you being back out on the champions tour, hopefully later this summer. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, Mark Kalk at Mark Kalk, and, uh, and my even funnier half, Brenda, my wife uh, is at Brenda Kalk. Uh, she's on Twitter as well. So uh, give us a shout, Mark. I appreciate you very much, my friend. Thank you for coming back and being a part of the show again tonight. Look forward to catching up with you and Brenda again a little bit later on this summer. Always, Chris. You got it. Thanks for having me. Take care, Mark. So. That is the great Mark Kalkovecchia, folks, and a, a wonderful player, obviously. You, you don't win majors and get in contention in majors without being a wonderful player. But uh, one of the things that uh, I appreciate most about Mark is just what a great guy he is. I've enjoyed every moment that I've had him as part of the show. Tonight was the sixth time, already looking forward to the seventh. And like he mentioned, his wife Brenda is a scream. She's hilarious. Uh, I had the privilege of having her on the show late last summer, and I look forward to getting that opportunity again, I hope, real soon. Before I get to my next guest, Owen Brown, I was talking with Eddie Dry, VP of Domestic Sales for Strixon Cleveland Golf, at the PGA Merchandise Show earlier this year, and I said, Eddie, I like your CBX full-face wedges. How can they help an average player like me play better? Here's what he had to say. An average player... I use one, and I'm in some lies that you can't even believe. And I need all the help I can get. And the face is bigger, and the grooves go all the way up and all the way out to the toe. So if I, you hit it on the toe, you miss it, bam, there's a groove. So I like that. So I carry a, a 58. There you have it, folks. Try the new CBX full-face wedges from Cleveland Golf. I want to tell you about something else I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show. And that's me and my golf. And they're offering 10% off their brand new range of training aids. I visited their booth and loved their breaking ball putting mat, which allows you to practice breaking putts at home on a traditional putting mat. I've got mine right here in my studio. They've just launched their own golf glove, and they're offering next on the tee listeners 10% off the whole range. Use code CHRIS10 for 10% off. That offer expires March 31st of this year. Check out their great array of training aids online at meandmygolf.com. With many years in the business, menswear brand Construct 
has finally launched its green golf collection, sustainably produced using renewable solar energy and recycled fabric. Hit your best shot in their performance-enhancing polos, quarter zips, and bottoms. Made with four-way stretch, quick dry, and UV 50-plus protection. From solids to bold, eye-catching designs, Construct Green is the perfect piece for making the best memories on the greens. And the best part? You can head to Construct.com, and that's C-O-N-X-S-T-R-U-C-T dot com, and use code CHRIS for 20% off the green collection today. Okay, now back in making his 12th appearance with me here on Next on the T is Owen Brown. Let me remind you about Owen's background. He's from Washington, D.C. He played his college golf out at Occidental College in L.A. He joined the golf team as a sophomore and gradually moved his way up to being their number one player. He was named a first-team all-conference, all-SCIAC golfer in 1980 and 82, and he was inducted into their Golf Hall of Fame in 1997. Their Golf Annual MVP Award is now named in his honor. Owen turned pro in 1984. He won four times on what was then the Nike Tour, twice in 1991, once in 93, and once in 96. He won three times out on the PGA Tour, and he's won twice so far out on the PGA Tour Champions. In 2005, he was named the PGA Tour Comeback Player of the Year, and over the course of his playing career, he's had five wins, 48 top 10s and 110 top 25s included in those five wins, two so far out on the Champions Tour, one of those being the 2011 U.S. Senior Open and the 2015 Greater Gwinnett Championship right here in Atlanta. He is one of my all-time favorite guests, and I'm very honored he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, O, thanks for coming back on the show. Chris, your intro... Your intro is so nice. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to uh, spend a few minutes with you talking golf. I appreciate you. So I, I want to get your thoughts on uh, what you saw this past weekend at the Masters. Um, it went from being beautiful on Thursday to treacherous on Friday, and uh, Saturday and Sunday were unbelievable. Um, your thoughts about what you saw? Yeah, the uh, the weather, first of all, the, the weather was kind of uh, – bipolar last week you know early in the week it was it was sensational and the guys who had the uh the late tea time thursday and the and the morning time friday definitely got the benefit of the of the draw uh having said that the guy who won the tournament was on the opposite side of the draw the weather came in and it just looked absolutely torturous out there uh it, nobody was having any fun tiger tiger looked like a uh cartoon character he was drenched and uh and just miserable and everybody else was too and what impressed me so much about the the weather conditions is is watching the best players in golf and the guys who could really move the ball out there go from hitting eight and nine iron into 18 to 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 you know getting to the front edge with with uh with a club that needs a head cover so uh it, it looked it looked really ugly and then then things cleared out, and the wind and the wind blew in, and caused them all kinds of trouble. But by the by the time the dust had settled and and the leaders were coming down the the stretch, you know things got mellow. And I noticed that the the pond on sixteen had not a ripple in it, and uh, and so we, we were we were privy to a, a heck of an event, a lot of excitement. Masters never fails to disappoint. It's just an incredible event. The first major always delivers. 
And oh, did you ever play in a tournament like in, in weather conditions like we saw? To your point, I mean, Thursday was about as beautiful as it could get. I think highs actually got into the 80s. And by the time we got into Friday and Saturday, the highs were, were barely cracking 50. So a pretty big temperature swing. And obviously the damp, cold conditions made it just that much more miserable, I would think, for those guys to be out there playing. And you ever deal with anything like that? Well, the weather the weather was in the mid-80s on Thursday afternoon, and it was closer to freezing on Saturday morning. Um, it was it was nasty. It was ugly and uh, and just and gruesome. And I, I haven't, to my recollection, played a tournament where the weather swung that wildly, in terms of you know cold rainy to warm or warm to cold rainy. But you know we've all played in conditions that were nasty, and we played the the uh, the senior British Open at Porthcall a number of years ago where we had three days of just brutal weather. Tom Watson called it the worst three days he'd ever played in open championship golf. So, you know, you play golf long enough and you're, you're going you're gonna to have days where you go, come off the course and go, no, that was the most beautiful day I've ever played golf. And you're going to have days where you come off the course and go, you know what, I don't ever want to see a, a golf course again. And I sure <laughs> as hell don't see it under these conditions. You got to play at the Masters three times, I believe. What What are your favorite memories of being a part of the tournament? Well, it's cliche, but it's always the drive down Magnolia Lane. And uh, the first thing that gets your attention driving onto the property is the beautiful uh, Magnolia trees that are on either side of the road. And then you go in the clubhouse and do whatever, and you walk out to go to the golf course and the putting green is there. The first tee is there. And the thing that's always struck me um, from my first experience on the property was how everything on the golf course was below the level of the clubhouse. So Washington roads, a flat street, it's out, you know, everything's the same. And then you go through the clubhouse and all of a sudden everything's below you. And, uh, and you can see almost a piece of almost every hole on the golf course from just above the first tee. So it, it's a remarkable piece of property. The television doesn't do it justice to how to how much the elevation um, comes into play and the elevation change comes into play. And I don't know what it is, but it's got to be a couple of hundred feet from the clubhouse down to Ray's Creek. So you're, you're, you're on a hillside, basically, populated by loblolly pines and uh, all the shrubs and and azaleas and dogwoods and all that stuff. And it's just truly a breathtaking place. You mentioned the elevation changes. Were you aware of that the first time you played in the tournament? Did, did that surprise you how much of a drop-off it is from 10 T to 10 green? Well, it's just, you, you, you get a, of a sense of it from watching the guys hit their tee shots off 10. And even when it's into the wind, the ball, trundles on down the hill right and it's a it's a severe severe downslope um but it's because when you enter the ground everything is level there you can't have an appreciation for how how different that is once you walk out the back door of the clubhouse and towards the putting green and the first tee and the 10th tee and so forth and and as i said from the top of that hill you can see virtually a piece of of every hole and uh, it's just, it's just a, it's a, it's a little bit of a stunner because you just, it's, it's unexpected. 
Larry Mize and Sandy Lyle both called it a career this year at the Masters. They both won in successive years in 87 and 88. Sandy was on the last hole on Friday when play was stopped. Some players thought it was crazy that they didn't let him putt out on 18 when play was suspended, but it was nice that he finished on Saturday. That way, when he was done, Larry Mize right behind him, they got to walk off together. Have you talked to those guys about winning the Masters and what it was like for them? I I kid uh, Sandy because, you know, he's such... He, he, people forget he was number one in the world for a while. Um, he was a terrific player. He was a, a, a Ryder Cup stud for the Euros. And I, I teased him one time and told him that I thought the shot that he hit out of the bunker on the 72nd hole was one of the most remarkable shots I'd ever seen until I played with him. And, th- and then it occurred to me after watching him play and how high he hit the ball and how quickly he hit it up in the air, that it really wasn't that hard a shot at all. So, <laughs> um, wow. he it almost, almost didn't take any sand and flicked a seven iron up on the green and then birdied the hole. People forget to win it outright. Uh, right. a really, really wonderful shot. By the way, when you have an uphill lie, your right foot's below your left foot, and you know you got to you got to fly. It's easy to hit it fat. It's easy to hit it left. And he just took it right over the top of the flag, and kind of frankly was a little unlucky. It didn't roll back down the hill and get really close, but he made the putt anyway. Right. And forget about Larry Mize because the shot that he hit in the playoff on number eleven is probably the greatest shot i've ever seen i mean it was uh almost impossible it was set up as such and if his ball hadn't gone into the cup it might have gone five feet by it might have gone nine feet by it might have gone in the water who knows you know i mean the greens had they had the slicks that day and people forget because it was greg norman who was standing on that green but uh sebi had had lost on the 10th hole and had to walk up the hill by himself. So it was a three-man playoff, and Larry ended up beating Greg Norman and Seve Ballesteros to win the Masters in what amounts to his hometown. So, and what a gent. What a, what a great guy, and what a great victory. That's going to live forever. Sure is. Oh, I'm a huge Jack Nicholas fan, and, and actually one of my favorite Masters was your first one in 98 because at the age of 58 years old on two bad hips, once he'd have replaced the following January, Jack made another charge in the final round that year. I'll never forget when the broadcast came on and Jim Nance starting out by saying, welcome to the final round of the Masters, and you are not going to believe what you're about to see. And there's Jack making another charge again at 58 years old and do you remember, were you around, did you watch the, the final two rounds of that event? I had missed the cut um, and was on my way to Hilton Head, actually. I, uh, the first day that year, the wind had blown. I think we had gusts over 50 miles an hour. And wow. I shot 72 that round and was really in pretty good position, tied seven or eight or whatever, going into Friday's round. And I made eight on the first hole. Um which was just stunning and just started the end of the, I ended up missing the cut by a couple shots, but you know, Jack, I don't know, you know, he's been in the game for so long, Jack Nicholas and the superlatives roll off people's tongues, but I, I just don't know if anybody can 
quantify uh, his record. It's just in 2008, you couldn't have gotten anybody to bet that Tiger wasn't going to pass Jack. You could not. And then a number of things occurred, physical and emotional and so forth. And Jack Nichols still, still sits atop the heap with 18 majors. And I don't know why they swiped the two U.S. amateurs from him because he really has 20. Uh, and, you know, then Tiger's got three, right? Right. Uh, additionally. But, you know, Jack is just the guy. When you talk about the history of the game, and there have been greats and, and so many greats, but there are only a couple who are in the conversation as the greatest who ever played. And Jack Nicholas is one and Tiger Woods is the other. Now the other guys certainly have their place in history, but in terms of, of record and accomplishment, you know, it's, it's Jack and Tiger. And uh, I've had the privilege of playing with both. I have great admiration for both and great respect as well. Another one of your peers did something great this year at the Masters, and that's Freddie Couples. He becomes the oldest player to make the cut. That's To me, at 63-plus years old, that's a huge accomplishment that uh, deserves an awful lot of uh, touting. What are your thoughts about Freddie showing the, the young guys that he can still play? Doesn't surprise anybody who plays with Freddie. Um, in the last uh, half year of golf, you know, he won, he won, uh, the SAS last year, shooting 60 in the final round. I, I sent him a text and go, dude, what the, you know, what, <laughs> uh, and he texted me back. He goes, yeah, that was fun. I go, really? <laughs> and still got the firepower, right? When he gets his puck, he doesn't, I, I've rarely played with a guy. I'm not saying that he hits every shot perfectly, but he doesn't ever seem to miss the middle of the club face. You know, all the rest of us are fighting the bottom groove or, you know, the toe of the club or whatever. And Freddie has just always had that natural hand-to-eye coordination where he just seems to flush all his shots. And he might hit it left or right, maybe misjudge the wind or whatever, but he doesn't ever seem to misstrike the ball. And so at a place at Augusta, like Augusta, where, where the distance control is so important, you know, coming into the greens and especially look, Freddie was the longest guy on tour for a long time, but now he's not playing against those kids. And so he's maybe taking a couple extra clubs where, the, you know, they're hitting nines and eights and he's hitting sevens and sixes. Um, but his ability to control his flight, his spin, uh, and his distance, uh, makes it, uh, possible for him to compete and to play well in that environment. And, you know, he does it year in and year out. And that's the thing, you know, when, when I, you know, talking about Jack a minute ago at 58 contending Freddie here at 63, making the cut Phil finishing second tied for second at 52. There's something about Augusta national that the former champions can, can continue to contend there year after year, even though they're in, at, you know, later on in their careers. And I don't know if it's that local knowledge and knowing where on the greens you have to play or where you have to hit your tee shot so that your second shot has the right angle to get in there. But it's something about Augusta National. Maybe it's the ghost. I don't know. That allows these guys to continue to play so well. It's amazing to me. There's no other course in golf, save St. Andrews, maybe Pebble Beach, 
where experience has more value. And, um, you know, there's that old chestnut about experience is something that you get when you don't get what you want. But it's also the repetition of having done things over and over and, and having seen all of the different conditions, knowing, for example, when the wind is blowing the flag down and left to right on 11, that it's really into and right to left on 12. I don't, you know, you, you only learn those things from having paid the price by not knowing them before. And a guy like Freddie, who's played there for, I don't know, 40 years or whatever it is, uh, and Jack the same and tom watson before he stopped playing and gary and all those guys arnie that course really because of the hill again we're getting back to the topography of of augusta national because of the hill the wind isn't blowing the same direction on one as it's blowing on the bottom of 11 and 12 and the net result of that is that these guys understand how the wind changes its course during the round and where they have to play and the angles at which they have to enter a certain hole. I mean, you saw the guys who knew what they were doing on number 13 on one of the days when the flagstick was in the back of the green, they, the guys really tried to push it up to the right so that they could pitch it up the slope instead of laying back to 90 yards or whatever, where they were trying to carry a ball, spin it and control it on a very small area. So you, you watch these things over and over and it's easy enough to say watching it on TV but until you've been there and seen or felt un- under your feet the angle of the slope where the ball is relative to, the, to that and your, where your ball needs to be in your stance and so forth, you have to have hit those shots repeatedly to have any kind of understanding of how it's going to react coming into those greens. And that's where those guys have a huge advantage. Oh, I would normally say that everyone was disappointed that Tiger ended up having to withdraw on Sunday morning. But the weather and the way he was limping around on Saturday, I think, made it obvious that he wasn't going to be able to give it a go on Sunday. He's dealing with plantar fasciitis again in that right foot. So all of the hills at Augusta National, on top of the cold, all that stuff did him no favors. But as we look ahead to next month's PGA Championship at Oak Hill up in Rochester, New York, which is way north of the city right there on Lake Ontario, I mean, average highs are going to be roughly what they were. I mean, lows... You know, uh, highs may get into the upper 60s, lows in the upper 40s. You you played there for the Senior PGA Championship back in 2019. What was it like? What was the course and the weather like when you guys tried to, to play Oak Hill in 19? We played one day, I believe it was cut day, where the wind came in and gusted over 40 miles an hour again. So it, was, it wasn't overly cold, fortunately, but it was blustery and very challenging. And that golf course... While it has some more some more holes that are that are generally more level, it also has a lot of side hills and awkward stances and elevation changes. Now they've they've uh, they've had a renovation since and they've redone some holes. Um, but Oak Hill is is one of those historical golf courses. Uh, Curtis won his second U.S. Open there and. Jay Haas won a senior PGA there and he was at plus nine and there you just don't know what you're getting with that lake effect weather you could have a day in all seriousness it's 82 or three degrees and the next day it could be in the 40s and pouring rain uh with the wind blowing sideways so it just it's May it's the end of springtime in that part of the world and we're just going to wait and see what happens but um I, I suspect that 
you know, unless things are kind of unusual, that we're going to see a variety of different conditions throughout the week of that championship, whether it's early in the week, midweek, or late in the week. Um, those guys are going to have to contend with that stuff. The other big story off the course is the proposed model local rule of rolling the golf ball back. I think you and I have talked about this a little bit in the past where, you know, Jack and Gary Player have been talking about the need to to do that for decades. Rory came out in support of it. Tiger and Fred Ridley gave their support during their press conferences last week. Tiger actually was talking about it going all the way back to 2017. How do you feel about that idea? I think that one of the great, one of the great features of the game of golf is that I can walk into a pro shop and buy a sleeve of golf balls that I know is no different than what I'm playing anyway in the event that I've run out. And I think, I think that uh, this whole ball controversy started back in the, uh, in the nineties. Um, there, you know, there was an evolution from the wound ball to solid core golf balls to multi-layer balls. And then starting around 2000, things really, really ha- had a jump. And it, it's a complicated issue. But if you're rolling back the golf ball for a fraction of a percent of golfers who play the highest level game, uh, that there is, and then you're requiring anybody who wants to enter in that arena to have to learn to play an entirely different product or to play a different product than they do that they do at their local club. I think I think that's a big ask, and I I would be entirely in favor of changing the performance of the golf ball, but having it be throughout the game and not specific to upper level professional golf. So I'm a fan of dealing with the distance issue. And look, people are going to say there are better athletes playing now. And that's a fact. There are more. Uh, There's certainly more depth, but nobody ever hit the ball harder than Jack Nicklaus. And there sure as hell wasn't and isn't a better athlete ever than Sam Snead. So I just think there are more of them. And I think it's important to recognize that there are a lot of constituencies here. There's the, there's the competitive component. There's the professional component. There's the, they're the manufacturers, you know, 40 years ago, there were only a handful. It was what Dunlop and Slazenger and and, uh, maybe a Kushnet Titleist and so forth. Now there are just a a list of, of, uh, of different club companies and ball companies. And there, there's a lot, there's a lot to do to get a lot of people on the same page. And I think, I think, uh, I think it's important to get everybody moving the same direction. Um, and to my point about, about how far the ball goes now, you know, in 1968, uh, I think the world record hundred meter dash was 9.9 seconds. And now it's 9.79 sections, which is a fraction. Let's say it's 1% and golf balls are going 10% farther. So, it's not because of the athletes. It's because of the athletes and the evolution in technology, you know, with graphite shafts and bigger club heads and, and uh, composite club heads and then the golf ball aerodynamics and, uh, and R&D. And so there, there are all kinds of things that have entered into the evolution of why golf balls go farther. I played with Jim Rice 
back in 1991. And I promise you, there aren't any golfers who could have hit, hit a golf ball harder than Jim Rice. And downwind, he hit it about three and a quarter when 300 was the gold standard. But into the wind, his ball went about 205 because it climbed up into the air. And that was spin-related and, uh, you know, the softness of the golf ball, the wound ball with the lotter or whatever. So there are all kinds of issues here. I think that the USGA is doing the right thing by having a period, uh, you know, a, uh, a comment period. But it wouldn't surprise me if this were like a balloon that, that were being floated to try and get more people thinking more along the same lines instead of just talking at one another, start talking to one another about how to get this thing right. What are your thoughts about the argument? Well, why don't we just make changes on the golf course? Let's make the fairways more narrow. Let's grow up the rough. Maybe you put some bunkers or something out there at 320 and make them think about it. Is that is that a viable solution or no? Yeah, it's a viable solution. It's already been done. Um, the tour had narrow fairways and five-inch rough for a long time. And guys started, you know, tearing ligaments and getting, you know, elbow tendonitis and all kinds of other problems um, because hacking it out of that stuff is not that easy either. And, yes, you could you could reposition bunkering. Um, that would have, you know, an effect on the problem. But the whole idea is is not to take clubs out of people's hands. It's to give them a challenge and using each club. And so if if a golf course uh, that Fred Couples won his Masters on was just barely under 7,000 yards, and now they've had to lengthen that almost 10% to accommodate the guys who are hitting it a lot farther that that requires an entirely different approach. Um, but if you, if all you do is move the bunkering, now what you do is you take the driver out of the hands of the longest guys. I don't begrudge those guys hitting it forever. They, they deserve to, right? But they, sh- they should have to pay a penalty for hitting an errant shot. And the problem with the, with the equipment nowadays is, is that it keeps the ball from veering wildly offline. And so the guys are, are able to swing freely and with with no fear of really hitting a wildly erratic shot like you used to see back in the day and uh you know for example take a shot that goes into the wind you know guys just tee it down and crown it a little bit and knuckle knuckle bleeds out there and goes just as far as it does uh without the wind blowing so you know there used to be a penalty for for hitting you know for not being able to control your spin off the driver off your irons uh, that you don't see as much nowadays as you saw 40 years ago. And uh, at the risk of saying, get off my lawn, that's my statement. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just a couple more before I let you go. And just uh, talking about this season out on the Champions Tour, are you going to be back this week at the uh, Invited Celebrity Classic in Irving? Yeah, looking forward. I, I missed the event last year. Uh and so uh, I haven't seen the golf course and I've heard there are a couple of holes that need extra attention. So I'm going to get out there on uh, early in the week and try and figure that place out. And, uh, you know, I've gotten into more tournaments this year than I expected more than I did last year at this, to this point. So I'm excited about, about playing and I've been playing, you know, my finishes haven't been all that great, but I've actually, my better is better than it was in my, and my bad is better than it was too. So I'm seeing some positive. In, in my golf and uh i'm kind of enjoying doing it again and and uh, looking forward to getting out well i'm counting on you being in the field again this year at the mitsubishi electric classic here 
in Atlanta because the time I spent with you out there last year was probably the most fun thing I've done in the game of golf in uh, in the 40-odd years I've been playing or been around the game. So I thank you very much for that, and I'm hoping I get to see you when you're here. I'm really just sorry to hear that that's uh, the high point of of, uh, <laughs> of <laughs> You know, that is actually that's actually tragic, and, and see if we can't make it better than that. So come on out. I'm going to play in the Monday Pro Am again. The Stewart Sink. I'm looking forward to getting back. Uh, you know, I love that golf course. I, I people forget that Greg Norman designed it. I think he did an incredible job. It's really good. Now this year we got a little bit of of a different challenge because there are 27 holes there, and we're playing the nine we don't normally play because I guess we're doing some re- renovation to the other, but. uh I think it's a it's a beautiful piece piece of property, and the golf course is you know it's it's pretty challenging. It's pretty long, and it's got some demanding demanding shots on it. So I'm looking forward to getting back there. Lo- I love those people up there. Mitsubishi's a great group. They sponsor multiple events on our tour. Uh, Monty Ortel's the tournament director up there. He's an awesome guy. So I look forward to seeing you up there. Oh, before I let you go, remind our listeners, how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing by following you online and on social media? Uh, they can chase me down on Twitter, Olin Brown, I guess, on Twitter. And that, and that's pretty much it. And uh, come on out, watch some of us play on the Champions Tour. It's great golf, great guys. And uh, you'd, be, you'd be surprised at how, uh, how good guys still are in their 50s. It's just remarkable. Yeah, it is. Owen, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and be a part of this show. You're fantastic, my friend. I look forward to catching up with you when you're here. Great to spend some time with you, Chris. And thanks for asking me to follow Cal because it's, t- it's a tall order. He's a great dude. And <laughs> yeah. I know he does a great job as well. He's, he's a good man. Looking forward to seeing him back out. He's, he's been through it this last year with all his physical issues. But, you know, he, he doesn't lose his sense of humor. And I, and I love that about the guy. So, <laughs> Me too. Take care. We'll catch up soon. Take care, bro. See you, man. That is the great Owen Brown, folks, and they just don't come better than that guy. And I and I'm and I'm sincere. And he can downplay it all he wants or think it's tragic, but uh, I got to uh, to walk shoulder to shoulder with him uh, during a practice round at Sugarloaf last year, and it was the best day I've had on a golf course ever. He's just such a wonderful human being and a lot of fun, and he makes you laugh and. Yeah, he still plays really, really good. And when I say that, I don't think he missed a shot all day long. I think he had every fairway and every green and and made a couple of putts. And if we were actually keeping score, I'm thinking he's in the mid-60s for that round. He played beautifully. So, uh, like I say, I just I enjoy him so much. I'm looking forward to catching up with him when he's here in a few weeks. Before I get to my next guest, Jeff Lofsted, I want to remind you about two under men's performance wear. They're the unofficial underwear of the PGA and the 2020 Ryder Cup team. Ricky Fowler is their global ambassador, and over 50 other PGA, Corn Ferry, and Champions Tour players wear them. Just to mention a few, like David Toms, Jerry Kelly, Justin Thomas, William McGirt, Scott McCarron, and Chris DeMarco. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management, delivering maximum comfort from the tee box to the boardroom to the bedroom. Use code NEXT20 to save 20% off your order at 2under.com. That's the number 2, U-N-D-R.com. 2under, performance in your pants. And you walk a lot of miles in life and on the course, so make sure you're walking in the right shoes. 
Scone changes the game with an affordable line of the most comfortable, versatile, slip-on golf shoes that can be worn anywhere. They're made with breathable microfiber fabric, spikeless treads, and an adjustable lace lock. And they're easy to clean, too. So spend less time changing shoes and more time living in them. Visit scony.com and use code NXT on T20. So next on T20 at checkout for 20% off. That's scony.com, S-K-O-N-I.com. They're also available at golf specialty retailers and green grass pro shops nationwide. Okay, now joining me is Jeff Lofsted. Jeff is the executive director of the South Florida section of the PGA of America. He graduated from West Virginia University with his MS in sports management. Shortly thereafter, he went out to Iowa and became the assistant executive director and tournament director for the Iowa section of the PGA of America. In 2000, he became the tournament director for the Michigan section. Since July of 2002, he has been the director of operations and now executive director of the South Florida section. And I had the privilege of having dinner with Jeff along with our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry earlier this year at the PGA Merchandise Show, and I'm excited to have Jeff with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Jeff, thanks for joining me. Hey, Chris, good to be with you. Thanks for uh, having me on and uh, giving me a uh, rewind of uh, my career to this point. Uh, A lot of great years, a lot of great memories in uh, all those years. So, Jeff, we got to talk because, as you may remember, I'm from Pittsburgh, and we got to talk about your choice of colleges. I mean, <laughs> the unfortunate decision to go to West Virginia when Pitt is right down the road. Help me understand. Yeah, you, you know, Chris, I'm a huge Pittsburgh fan. I love everything about it except for the University of. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. If, if you're from Pittsburgh, you feel the same way about Morgantown, I'm certain. A hundred percent. Having had dinner with you a few months ago and, and, and hearing, you know, all the great things that, that you guys are doing down there in the South Florida section. Talk about uh, how much you guys are giving back to not only the, the community and charities, but to, to the kids and growing, growing our game from the ground up. Yeah, it's, it's really been fun over the last, uh, it was really, my, I guess, in 2010. Uh, that, that we kind of sat down as a, as a group with our, our foundation board. And at the time we were, we were running a pretty small junior golf tour. We'd, we'd run nine or 10 events a year for a few hundred kids. And, and we, and we really sat down at that point and said, we, we, we need to, uh, either, uh, just cruise along with what we're doing and be happy with that. Or we need to get serious and really change, uh, change what we're doing and try to impact more lives in the community. And, and, and we took the, uh, the latter approach and, uh, since that time, uh, our junior golf tour has uh, grown from, uh, you know, nine to 10 events to uh, just under 100 events for uh, we have uh, this year we'll have probably 1300 uh, junior tour members, uh, where back then we had about 250 members of our junior tour. And and then we also started some programs uh, where we go into five different children's health care facilities and uh, teach kids in the hospital the game of golf with PGA professionals. Uh, which is an incredibly uh, rewarding program. We uh, partnered at the time with uh, with Habitat for Humanity. We have 13 counties in our section as well as Puerto Rico. And so we set out on a goal to uh, to sponsor and build a house in every single county within our section boundaries. Uh, proud to say we've, we've uh, knocked off 10 at this point, and uh, we're on house number 11 uh, this year. It's going to be down in the Keys, so you might want to come down and help us uh, with that build. Um, 
And then, you know, the, kind of the most recent addition to uh, to our foundation programs is PGA Hope, which is a, a program that operates around the country in all the PGA sections, but stands for helping our patriots everywhere. And uh, the program is intended to uh, assimilate veterans back into civilian life. And uh, all these veterans come to our program uh, with some sort of disability, uh, many of which we can't diagnose uh, by looking at them. But the program uh, certified by the VA is, is a therapeutic program that uh, teaches them the game of golf and, and gets them out uh, out enjoying things that maybe at times we take for granted. So um, we, we've had uh, an incredible growth since that time, and, and we're uh, impacting hundreds and thousands of lives and, and really, uh, re- really making a difference with what we're doing all because of the game of golf. And you've got Jack Nicholas right there in your backyard in the in the South Florida section. And the play Yellow Birdie Bash was yesterday. Talk about that great event. So as part of Jack and Barbara's campaign, uh, I'm sure that you probably at times have even talked about this on your podcast, but uh, Jack has affinity for the color yellow that dates back many years to his relationship with a young cancer patient. And uh, through this campaign play yellow jack and barbara are uh, aiming to raise 100 million dollars over 5 years for uh, children's miracle network and uh, they started this play yellow birdie bash uh, in southern ohio in conjunction with the Mor- memorial with the southern ohio pga uh, it was natural to expand to south florida where jack is and and he and barbara's involvement with the honda classic and and it all it really is is, is a birdie a thon with uh, pga professionals in our section where uh, RPJ professionals go out and seek pledges and donations for the birdies that are made. Last year was uh, our inaugural year with the Play Yellow Birdie Bash. We raised uh, $460,000. And uh, yesterday, uh, we battled off and on rain and some very high winds. So our number was slightly lower uh, in birdies from last year. But uh, it looks like right now, we're uh, with donations still coming in, we're at about $442,000. So uh, over nine hundred thousand dollars in two years. We're we're certainly pretty proud of uh, that program and what it's become in two short years. Someone else that's doing great things in your section is a guy I rooted hard for during his NFL career, and that's former Steelers wide receiver Santonio Holmes. Talk about how he got involved in your section and what he's doing after he after he got started. I tell you what, he is uh, he's an amazing guy, and and. And I only knew him uh, like you as, as certainly a big fan of his and, and that catch in the Super Bowl that he made, uh, maybe the greatest catch in Super Bowl history. But uh, he he reached out to uh, to us and, and asked if he could have a meeting with us. He uh, is from Bell Glade and he, he came in and, and he met with us. And within five minutes of the meeting, uh, I realized that uh, this is a, a very intelligent, very passionate uh, person that is trying to give back to the kids in Bell Glade. And one of the things that he said to me really, uh, really hit home. He, he said, if, if I go out in the Bell Glade and, and I try to teach the kids football, uh, well, well everybody's going to come and, and everybody teaches football out there. If I go out in the Bell Glade and I try to teach the kids the game of golf and all the opportunities that it's given me, then I know my number is going to be smaller. I know I can have an impact and I think I can really change some kids' lives. And so we've partnered with him to, uh, to help with a golf camp in the summer months. Uh, they do uh, a STEM project in the morning with Pratt Whitney 
uh, and their engineers come out and they do an engineering project in the morning. And then we teach kids golf in the afternoon. After our first uh, week in Bell Glade, uh, a couple uh, summers ago, uh, Glade Central High School had their first golf team in nine years and uh, had a golf team uh, again this year. So he uh, he's using the game of golf to make a difference in Bell Glade. And, and, and I think he's doing it. You've also got something else that really um, touched a heartstring for me, and that's uh, the Smiling for Life program. Talk about what that is. Yeah, that 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 was one of the programs in 2010. It was really, quite honestly, other than junior golf, which we'd already been doing a little bit of, that that was the first program we started. And we went to Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital, and, and we met met uh, with the folks down there and, and said, we, we'd like to bring golf. Um, into the hospital. And, and of course, they kind of looked at us like we were crazy. Uh, and we talked through things that we could do with um, snag equipment and artificial turf putting greens. And 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 so we started what we, we've we uh, been calling ever since then, Smiling for Life, where once a week, uh, PGA professionals go into uh, children's healthcare facilities. I say healthcare facilities because it's four hospitals, uh, including Nicholas Children's Hospital in Miami, uh, but it's also the Quantum House, which is in West Palm Beach, which is a, is a similar uh, concept to what most people would know as a Ronald McDonald House, where families and and children stay whenever they're receiving uh, outpatient treatment at at a local hospital. And 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 our PGA professionals go in once a week, and um, you know maybe teaching the game of golf to the kids is, is a strong statement, but but they're certainly playing the game of golf with the kids uh, through snag equipment and some artificial turf putting greens that we've been able to install and. Uh, really uh, amazing stories have come out of that. We we had a young patient that um, that had a heart transplant uh, at uh, Joe DiMaggio, and and once he uh, and he went to golf every week uh, in the hospital, and once he was well enough to uh, to get out of the hospital, uh, the PGA professional that taught him uh, took him out to a golf course and started giving him lessons at a golf course. And so we have we have many stories uh, like that. Kids that never touched a golf club before that were in a hospital that got healthy and well enough and they came out of the hospital and all of a sudden they're playing middle school and high school golf. So it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. It, it's therapeutic, not only for the kids, it's therapeutic for their parents to see their kids enjoying themselves. And it, and it is for the healthcare workers too, that uh, have to work in that environment day in, day out. Jeff, just a couple more before I let you go. And you've got a, a couple of tournaments coming up. You got the club car pro official, coming up this week and then you've got the nelson cup matches next week talk about those yeah our pro official is is really a fun event for our pga professionals to uh to bring the, the president of their facility or, or perhaps a, a board member or committee member out to uh, enjoy a fun day of golf so we, we have that at ballon isles country club which is an unbelievable facility and uh in palm beach gardens uh as luck would have it it hasn't rained in south florida in several months and uh we have a <laughs> Strong forecast of rain in in the uh, in the mix tomorrow, so we'll we'll hope to dodge those showers. And the Nelson Cup is uh, an, an annual event named after uh, the family of one of our PGA professionals that were very instrumental in, uh, in in junior golf in Broward County and really kind of starting junior golf in Broward County. And it it's a Ryder Cup format where our three chapters uh, play each other, and uh, it's always kind of the uh, early season event and and the opportunity where these professionals work so hard throughout the winter months that they can dust out the clubs and get a little competition against each other. Jeff, for our listeners in the South Florida area who want to get involved with the section and, and then also some of the programs that you mentioned, how can they do that? Yeah, there, 
really two ways. Our, our website is sfpgagolf.com and uh, all of our social handles are South Florida PGA. So everything that we do certainly gets posted uh, out on those social handles. And then uh, on our website would, would certainly be more detail about uh, all the programs that we administer and offer. Well, Jeff, I think you've made some questionable decisions, that whole West Virginia thing. And then, of course, hanging out and having dinner with Tom Patrick. He leaves you scratching your head a little bit as well. You you can't judge me uh, for, for those things. And I, I know I have to be a little <laughs> quiet because I remember a football game that uh, that happened this past September. But we, we get another chance at you guys this year. So we'll see what happens. Absolutely. Jeff, take care. All the best to you and your family. I hope we get the privilege of having you back on the show and get some more updates about the great things you're doing because it's it, there are a lot of them. And uh, kudos to all of you guys and your team. Thanks, Chris. I, I appreciate you, you having me on. Thank you very much. Take care, Jeff. All right. That is Jeff Lostead. Again, folks, the South Florida PGA section, they're doing a lot of great things down there and helping out a lot of people and growing the game uh, for our youth. And uh, you heard about the... Uh, uh, some of the kids in hospitals that are uh, learning the game as, as best that they can teach them there. And then uh, Santonio Holmes. I'm looking forward to having Santonio as part of the show because he's doing some great stuff there in Belgalade to uh, to help his alma mater and, and grow the game at the high school level there. So a lot of great stuff. And thanks to Jeff and, uh, and his incredible team for all they're doing. All right. Now back and next on the tee with me is the host of the Augusta Golf Show. And that is John Patrick. You want to talk about great human beings and guys that have had a profound impact on me. Well, John Patrick is that guy. You can check out his show at AugustaGolfShow.com. He has been covering the Masters for almost 40 years to this point. I would say that nobody knows the tournament, the course, and the impact in golf history that the Masters has had better than John does. And when it comes to, like I say, best golf radio shows on the planet, we are all looking up at him and that Augusta Golf Show. Uh, with the COVID protocols, folks, reducing the number of people in the shows that got credentials to be in the press room at Augusta National, one radio show was granted that. One. And that one was the Augusta Golf Show with John Patrick. That's all you need to know about how great John and his show are. And I'm excited. He is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, John, how are you, my friend? Chris, I am great. How are you? <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. So, John, I obviously got to get your thoughts on on this year's tournament, but I want to start by talking about the interview you did last week with Jim Nance. Talk about your relation uh, relationship with Jim. Well, um, obviously, it began here. Um, I think, if I remember correctly, I think we met before I had him on the show for the first time. Um, He's, you know, he's very busy and it's a very busy time of the year for him. Usually when he's, well, he's got year to four, the NCAA basketball tournament uh, before he gets here. And uh, he, he's just been gracious to squeeze me in when he can. He's also gracious to say he makes a point of it. Um, we've been doing it now probably five, six years or so. Um, I will. I will touch base with him two or three times a year, start a football season to wish him a good, a good season, the start of the golf season, uh, birthday, whatever it might be. Um, you know what? He's, you know, he takes a, he takes, he takes some hits sometimes for being sentimental and syrupy and, 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 and kind of gushing, um, on the telecast, especially here. 
but that's the way he is. And you can't argue with that. He is sentimental. He is syrupy. He's, you know, he fascinates me the way he remembers dates. He can pull dates out of anywhere. When this happened, when that happened, when that, I, I marvel at that. He's, he's been very kind to me. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I hope one day he has offered up. I don't know that we're going to make it because now he splits his time between Nashville and, and Pebble. Uh, if we made it out back to California and made it up to Pebble, he's like, come on, come to the backyard, hit a wedge. So uh, <laughs> maybe one day. Does he really take shots for being genuine? I mean, that's that's terribly disappointing to think. That someone's taking a shot at him for for just being emotional about what he cares about. Yeah, I you know I think I think people think it's phony. I think people think he's putting on an act, and and that's why I said what I said. No, that's him. That's the way he is all the time. Um, people kind of think he's, you know, he's just kind of piling on with with the saccharin and and, and all of that stuff. But that's that's why I have no problem with it. That's that's Jim. That's just the way he is. I mean, you know, even the hello friend, you know, people kind of, oh, why does he keep saying that? Well, because that's what his dad said. And that's how his dad, you know, would 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 say hello to people. So that's that's why Jim does that. You asked him about Rory's chances of completing the career Grand Slam this year. And I think we all thought this was going to be the year it was going to get done. He's playing so beautifully, you know, end of last year throughout the, the first several months of this season. Um, but it got away from him pretty quickly in the second round. I mean, he was there at 72 in the first round, made five bogeys in his first 11 holes on Friday, ends up shooting 77. And just like that, his Masters was over this year. What do you think went wrong with Rory? You know, I, it, someone said early in the week, and I think we we tend to we tend to think it's all mental with Rory and, and Augusta National. And, and the career grand slam. But somebody said this golf course just really doesn't suit his eye. He has a hard time with this golf course. And add to that uh, the career grand slam. I mean, think about it. You know, there's something he wants to get done. And he gets one shot every year to get it done. And, and then three days before he gets his one shot to get it done, everybody's asking him about getting it done. So I, I, you know, I know what people said going into it. I never really gave Rory much of a chance. I didn't think he would miss the cut. I, I honestly, Chris, I honestly, Chris, and we, we've seen it happen in, in this town with this golf tournament. It would not surprise me if he never won this golf tournament. Really? Yeah. I mean, you know, every year is a year older. Every year it gets harder to do. Every year, somebody. John Roms, somebody comes up and 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 plays well. It just I've just been around this thing long enough and thought somebody was going to win it and they never do. It wouldn't surprise me at all if Rory never won. Speaking of that, and like I say, you you've been covering the tournament for almost forty years now. Who are some of the other guys that you thought would win it that never did? You know, I always thought, and this may be a name out of left field. But I just always thought K.J. Choi was going to win this golf tournament. I don't know why. I just, you'd watch him come and play, and he seemed, you know, he seemed to have what you needed to have. He, 
He was methodical about how he went about doing things. He never really seemed to take a lot of chances. He played the percentages. He played fairly well in the golf tournament. This is at a time when, you know, through the years, you kept hearing you needed to learn the golf course. You needed to play the golf course X amount of times to, to learn all of its idiosyncrasies and nuances. And he seemed to be doing that, but it never happened. Obviously, you know, there have been some glorious days out there, but but obviously for a lot of people, one of the saddest days out there was when when Nick beat Greg Norman. And everybody thought, I mean, we all thought going into that round on Sunday that it would be one of those great Sundays at Augusta, coronation of a of a fan favorite and someone who had fired and fallen back in this golf tournament. And then that day happened. And I don't, I mean, it's hard to feel sad for these guys. They're very well off. They play, they play this game very well. But boy, that was, that was truly a sad day at Augusta National. John, you and I in the past have talked about Jack and the 86 Masters and the golf ball that you got from Jackie and, and all the emotions around what it was like in 86. And I was talking earlier um, tonight with Mark Kalkavecchia and Olin Brown about the 98 Masters. And that's one of the, I, I don't know, I don't know how what adjective to use, but I, I would say, I, obviously, Mark O'Meara won, and that was great. But Jack, and speaking of Jim Nance, you know, when Jack came in, into that 98 Masters, 58 years of age, two bad hips that he would later have replaced uh, the following January and Jim Nance coming on for the final round saying, you know, welcome to the final round of the Masters. You are not going to believe what you're about to see. And Jack makes another run at a seventh green jacket. To me, that's an underrated Masters from a Jack Nicholas standpoint that I hold very dear. I understand that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, I do. Um, it didn't. It didn't have a feel that day of 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 Jack being able to pull off a seventh, but but boy, it um, for me especially, it certainly was a lot of fun. As much as I as much as I never thought I would be somewhere on that day in 1986, you know, fast forward uh, twelve years, and I, why well, or a couple of years, I didn't really think. I didn't really think that was going to happen. Coming into this year's tournament, some uh, in the media were talking about what it would be like having the live players back in the field. And to me, John, it, it seemed like a non-story. I mean, the patrons seemed to receive Phil and, and Cam Smith just fine. I know they were pulling a little harder for John Rahm than, than they probably were for Brooks. But any of the issues the ill will or you know guys not talking to you to me that was all drummed up by the media i I didn't see that any of that really was a story at all do you see it any differently um i don't see it differently now i mean i i i do think it was worth discussing uh prior to the tournament but but as the week went on and the players were talking about how well they were received how 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 great it was to see people on the range how there was nothing that took place at the at the at the dinner tuesday night and i never thought anything would take place at the dinner and and in the in the in the times that i got out on the golf course and and was able to watch a little of the practice rounds and some of the live players came through and the live players in many cases kind of played with themselves they didn't 
there weren't a whole, there wasn't a whole lot of interaction and grouping uh, in the practice rounds. But to your point, warmly received by the crowd. Um, nobody, you still, you know, they were warmly received on a general scale, but sitting, sitting in the stands, you could still hear, you know, a couple of people say this and that about them. But, but there certainly were no catcalls, no boos. I thought as, as popular as Phil is, and it's been a couple of years, you know, his receptions were a little lukewarm compared to Phil. Um, and, and I think the guys were all kind of tiptoeing around wondering how it was going to go because, because there was, you know, how am I going to interact with my peers on the range? How's that going to go? Once that goes a certain way, what's it going to be like with the crowd? How's that going to go? So I, you could sense early on in the week that um, that they were a little, a little, a little cautious about how it would go. Now, to your point, I do think, and I hope we put to rest the conversations that were taking place about their preparation for a major championship, and they weren't playing competitive golf, and they weren't major championship ready. Well, it seemed like Phil Mickelson, Brooks Kepka, and Patrick Reed were major championship ready. Yeah, 100%. Um, Fred Rid- Ridley was asked why Greg Norman didn't get an invite to this year's tournament during his uh, midweek press conference. And he was quick to point out how he wanted to keep the focus on the tournament and that Greg had only actually come a couple of times over the last de- decade or so, even when he was invited. Can you picture Greg being invited back to future tournaments? Um, you know, yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't quite picture how this all plays out. It's a question I ask on the show almost every week. How do you see this playing out? How do you see this ending? Can you see Dustin Johnson back on tour? Can you see Brooks Kepka back on tour? Um, and nobody really can at the moment, but it doesn't mean it won't happen one day. You know, I mean, who five years ago would have predicted we'd have been in this situation? So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I can see a day uh, because I have no idea how this is going to play out. Chairman Ridley was also asked about his support of the the model local rule of rolling the golf ball back. And he said that they're going to support it. To me, that means it's a done deal. Talk all you want about comment periods. I mean, we, we've talked about, you know, Jack and Gary Player have been talking about rolling the golf ball back for decades. Tiger talked about the need to do it all the way back in 2017. He reiterated his thoughts about if you're, if you're a professional, if you got a P by your name, you play a pro ball. If you got an A by your name, you play an amateur ball. Rory also gave his support about it a few weeks ago. And now with Augusta National behind it, I, I don't see how they don't do it. Do you think that there's still an opportunity that this gets shot down? Well, I think maybe maybe ten percent. You know, if 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 the if the public comments are so against it, then they have to make a, a decision as the governing bodies whether or not they're going to buck the public comment. But again, but again, this golf ball is not meant for public consumption. It's meant for the elite players. I, I keep hearing I keep hearing talk that you know if they go to this golf ball and it's available, it's available for purchase. A lot of people are going to buy the golf ball. Really? Okay. I'm, I'm not quite sure about that, but um, <laughs> you know, the question I did not get the chance to ask the chairman, I would have liked to have known 
I did find out when he found out. My two questions would have been, when did you find out about the initiative? And had you known about the initiative, would you still have moved back 13? I, yes. did, find out, I did find out that he, he, learned, he learned about it when we all learned about it. I, find, I found that out from the USGA. And, and I guess the die had already been cast. But I wonder, I, I, I thought through this whole process that this weighed on him heavily. Uh, Billy Payne did not touch the golf course. Booty, before Billy, did touch the golf course and took a lot of grief for it. Billy worked a lot on the infrastructure of the tournament, not on the golf course. And now here comes Fred Ridley with a discussion about moving back, you know, a, a tee on one of the uh, sacred holes of the game. Um, so I, I did wonder, had he known about this, would he have done this? Having said all of that, I do think the I do think the golf hole played exactly the way they wanted it to play. I think they got everything out of it they had hoped for. I think one of the uh, one of the one of the little secrets that that didn't get talked about much. It was talked a lot about moving the tee back, but not a lot of people talked about moving the tee up. It was raised just a little bit, and and when you hit your tee shot from a elevated tee, it doesn't roll as much. So. Uh, I think they got exactly the results they were looking for. Augusta National sent out an email about a new hospitality pavilion that they're looking to build across the street, uh, across Washington Road for next year's tournament. What are you hearing about that? So far, nothing. I mean, all all of those announcements were very vague. More to come. Um, The only thing I can gather from it, and I'm speculating here, if you go to masters.com, you can inquire about it. You can put your name in a list for that. I have to imagine, Chris, you know, if, 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 if they're taking applications from people on the website, it will not be 12500 bucks like Berkman. It will be, <laughs> it will, it will be, it will be probably, you know, it could very easily be the cost of a, of a, of a patron's badge. But I wouldn't be surprised if it was the cost of a patron's badge plus another hundred or something like that. Uh, to allow you to, uh, to 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 utilize the hospitality. Don't really know where physically in town. He he says across the street, and there is plenty of room across the street. He says it's going to be across the street. I guess you know once once they break ground, we'll know a little bit more. But rest assured, like everything else, even if it is hospitality for the common man, it'll be an uncommon place. No doubt. Golf Digest did an article about the future of the club and looking out 10 years, 20 years. And when you look at their 2043 predictions, they're talking about a, a fan village, a second golf course being added, housing for the players to be, being available there. We know that all things are possible through Augusta National. But what do you think about an expansion that is of that magnitude over the next 20 years? I don't think they'll ever do anything to house the players. I don't think the players want that. I think the players would like to be off the campus, off the compound, decompressing when they don't have to be there. It's pressure packed when they're, when they're on site. And you know, it's different, Chris. It's pressure packed, you know, just because you're on that club and you, you don't want, you don't want your guests or your ticket holders to do anything wrong. I don't think they want anything to do with, with, with staying on the campus. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't really believe there will be a, a, another golf course. 
Um, I know there's been some conversations here in town that they are retrofitting a space across the street from the club because they would like they would like to be able to comfortably hold the dining capacity for the women's amateur and the drive, chip, and putt. Here to four, especially the drive, chip, and punt, has gone off-site. Uh, they've done it at a local hotel, large hotel downtown, and they do like to control everything they do. So I do think they're looking into uh, some sort of dining situation, and who knows? Maybe the hospitality house provides that sort of thing. Um, but but I, I, I do get a sense of that. I still, I, first of all, Chris, I'd love to be around. I hope I live long enough to see what they're going to do, but they're just going to keep doing things. I still believe somewhere down the road, we're going to see some sort of museum. Um, they have, and I think I've said this on the show before, they have been pretty, pretty aggressive over the last 15 years in collecting artifacts, something they didn't do prior to that. And, and, and I don't know why you would do that to just, you know, put them downstairs next to the wine cellar. I just think at some point, and again, they can, this can be a growing the game initiative. I just think at some point there'll be a museum. At some point, you know, they'll, they'll partner up with Apple or somebody like that, or you'll be able to go into this museum and, the video game's a great example of that. You'll be able to go to the museum and, you know, hit a shot on the 12 or try to go for 13 and two or something like that. You know, as a museum, you've got to stay interactive. You've got to stay relevant. I can't think of a place that can stay more relevant with that kind of project than Augusta National, let alone what that would do for this community, for the hotels, heads and beds and things like that. John, speaking of new courses, I read that uh, Cypress Shoals is a new residential community going up in North Augusta, just right over the river in South Carolina. Tom Watson is said to be designing the new golf course over there, just like, say, five with five miles, I think they're saying, from Augusta National. What are you hearing about that project? Um, lovely piece of land. Uh, very speculative at this moment. I don't, think they're, I don't think they've raised the money they need to do this project. Um, if I were being truthful with you, and I've said this on I've said this on the radio show, the daily radio show. You know, you can count on one finger the memorable Tom Watson golf course. Um, <laughs> so, you know, if, uh, what we don't know about a project such as this and this is a real estate venture now. So this this comes under the heading of, you know, speculative real estate venture. Did they did they try to get Cor Crenshaw? Did they try to get Gil Hans? Did they? Settled for Tom Watson was Tom Watson a choice because he is a Masters winner, but the the website is beautiful. If if they can create something that lives up to the website, then it will be spectacular. It is my understanding that along with this project, there will be a second golf course by a much more noted architect that will be the public facility in this project. Chris, we've just and it's not necessarily just golf related. In 40 years of living here, we've had a lot of speculative projects, a lot, that never came to fruition. You know, I can take you back to last year when a group was going to come in and because of the Masters, they were going to hold this concert series of 
Blake Shelton on Monday night and Tim McGraw on Wednesday night and Jimmy Buffett on Friday night, and it never came close to coming off. So I, with this sort of thing, its impact in the community, not just golf, but in the community, oh, it's a big wait-and-see attitude. I, I'm, I'm going to be Missouri on this one. You're going to have to show me. But I will say this. It is, it is a wonderful piece of land if they can make it happen. Don, I got to get your thoughts on the actual result of the tournament. And John Rahm played beautifully. The stars seemed to line up perfectly for him. It was the 40th anniversary of Seve's second victory. Sunday was Seve's birthday. I'm not sure you could have written a better script. What did you think about what you saw from Rahm? No surprise. I, I really wasn't surprised. He was my pick. Um, I, you know, you, you sit there and wonder how it's going to transpire. Kepka with the four-shot lead. How does this happen? I, I felt like it was going to happen. I just didn't know how it was going to happen. Um, I think, you know, we've been so spoiled by Tiger and his exploits. And we keep wishing someone else would come along and, quote-unquote, be the next Tiger. There will never be the next Tiger. Um, so when somebody does something, whether it's Scotty for the last 14 months or what John Rahm has done, for the last six months or so, you know, we, we begin to, we begin to anoint them. And, and I think it's, it's a little quick to do the anointing, but, um, well, he's the real deal. And, 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 and everybody thinks so. Everybody who knows this sort of thing, thing thinks so, not just the pundits, not just the press. Um, and I, you know, like, like Scotty in the last 14 months, at times I wonder where it all comes from. Uh, how does it happen? John and Scotty, neither of them do anything exceptionally well. You know, they're they're not the best driver of the golf ball. They're not the best putter of the golf ball. But both of them do not make mistakes. And I think that is that is the mark of a major champion. They do not beat themselves. We don't have to go any further back than Tiger. And if you want to go further back than Tiger, you got Jack. They did not beat themselves. And I don't think John Rahm did that. And I've heard numerous times over the last couple of days that, you know, his back nine especially was Tiger-esque. He just, he put the ball where he was supposed to put it. He didn't take chances. He told the field, if you want to beat me, come make birdies because I'm not making bogeys. And, and I think that is his strength. And, and if he's able to continue to do this, well, then, you know, he, he might be a six, seven, eight-time major champion. I got to get your thoughts on Tiger. Obviously, the weather didn't do him any favors. The cold, the damp, the wind, all that sort of thing really had to be tough on his body. But so is the elevation changes and playing the course there. I'm not sure, John, that he's got another good run in him at Augusta National. What are your thoughts on his future prospects at the Masters? You know, for those of us who have been there with him since the beginning, I understand I understand you don't put anything past him, but I have thought now for really since he came back from the accident that he was a mere shell of what he used to be. And, and, you know, when he couldn't make the cut at the open championship on one of the flattest golf courses in the world, um, I don't know how we expect him to perform at this golf course. Uh, I, I'm very comfortable with the fact that I, we, we've absolutely seen the best of Tiger. I don't expect, I don't expect anything else from him. I can't expect anything else from him. He just, 
I, I've always thought he's in more pain than he lets on. He always has been that way. Um, it, I, it was it, it was painful to see. Um, it wasn't unexpected to see. I, I when he started talking about a limited schedule, you know, I thought I knew he'd try four tournaments a year. I thought he might try six. I thought he might try his tournament in Los Angeles. I thought he might try Jack's tournament. But when you do the math, you know, if he's going to try to play the PGA and he's going to try to play the U.S. Open, he can't play Jack's tournament in between. He just he talks about how difficult it is for him to to recover and recoup. So, you know, I think I think he's going to try to play four tournaments a year. Um, I I would not I, I I would I said this last year I would not be surprised Chris that if maybe we hear before the 2024 Masters that that's it. John, before I let you go, remind our listeners again how they can listen to your shows and stay up to date with you on social media as well. Uh, Twitter is at Augusta Golf Show. The website is AugustaGolfShow.com. Uh, the show airs in various southeastern markets, obviously locally here. But if you've got the iHeartRadio app, if you've got Odyssey, if you've got uh, Golf News Net, you've got Alexa in the house, just ask to listen to the Augusta Golf Show. And lo and behold, my golly, there he is. <laughs> John, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and be a part of the show. Let You're me, fantastic, my friend. And I, me, I mean it sincerely. You are the gold standard. Well, let me say this about that. And, and I think I've said this before, but I don't think anybody says it enough. And, and maybe your other guests said it to you often. There's nobody nicer in this game. Nobody nicer in this, in this industry of, of this than you are. I mean, you are, you are religious about those, those, those tweets over the weekend. When I see a lot of notifications in my, in my box, I said, well, Chris has tweeted about the show again. Um, <laughs> you really are. I mean, you know, in the spirit of full disclosure, you and I have not met face to face, but you are one of the nicest people, not only in this game, but that I probably have ever run across. Well, I certainly appreciate that very much. And um, you have taught me a lot about what it's like to do a, a podcast, a radio show. I mean, I'm privileged now to to be on 680 The Fan with Brian, uh, Brian Katrick and the uh, uh, the crew there on Sunday mornings, but I learned w most of what I've learned about how to be a, a, a decent broadcaster by listening to you and your show and the way that you conduct interviews. Uh, well, and I appreciate what you said. That means a great deal to me, John. Well, there you go. There he is. He's being nice again. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank John, you, Chris. You're the best. Take care. And I hope uh, we get the privilege of catching up with you again soon. Thank you, sir. See you, John. That is the great John Patrick, and the Augusta Golf Show is where you can find him online and uh, on uh, the different apps. He talked about iHeart and the other places that you can find it. But I mean it sincerely, folks. John Patrick is the gold standard of broadcasting, particularly in the golf world and then just in general. I mean, we're all looking up to him to, to see how great a golf show is. And, and uh, I mean it sincerely. I listen to his his shows i listened to his interviews again you can go back and listen to that jim nance one and many others the great dotty pepper who i think very highly of as well john recently spent some time with dotty uh but 
but listening to the way that he conducts an interview and how he interacts with his guests is something that uh, I'm trying very hard to emulate. And um, hopefully one day I, I get half as good as John. Uh, just a, a wonderful human being and a, and a great broadcaster. And I'm so very thankful that I get the privilege of having him uh, as part of the show as often as I have. And uh, hopefully we get the privilege of catching up with him a little bit later on this golf season as well. Folks, before I close up shop tonight, you've heard me talk about some great products that I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show. And another one that stood out to me is On Point Golf. Game-changing, three-dimensional ball markers that science shows will help us see the line better when we're putting and therefore make more putts and lower our scores. See for yourself why Jim Furyk and I are big fans by going online to onpointgolf.us. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this edition of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks again go out to Mark Kalkovecchia, Olin Brown, Jeff Lofsted, and John Patrick for joining me this week. Scheduled to join me next week are our resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick, will be back, as will my favorite author and the original producer of the content on the Golf Channel, Keith Hirschland. I love Keith, and I'm so excited he's going to be back a part of the show next week. Plus, my favorite twin brothers will be joining me, Mitch and Matthew Lawrence. So it's going to be a really fun show. Folks, I hope you'll come back and be a part of it with us. You can find this show available as a podcast just about anywhere you get your podcasting content. In particular, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audioboom, Player.fm, and Good Pods. And my sincere thanks to the folks over at Good Pods for making Next on the T one of their recommended podcasts. Download their free app and stream your favorite podcast on your favorite device. Most of all, my thanks to all of you for being the greatest supporters in the history of podcasts. I appreciate you all so very much. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.